Welcome to the Oxford Berlin Creative Collaborations podcast. In this series, we showcase research projects across the arts and humanities, drawing on expertise from the University of Oxford and the Berlin University of the Arts, and integrating scientific methodologies with artistic expression. Welcome to our latest edition. This is Culture Invert from the Oxford Berlin Creative Collaborations podcast. We are here with Abby Williams, Professor of English Literature at St. Peter's College, working with graduate students and local AI company Charisma. Abby has developed Willplay, an AI-enabled platform that gets young learners to text with characters from Shakespeare's plays. See also our earlier podcast on the subject. Joining us is Jussi Englisleve, professor at University of the Arts Berlin and also creative director at Art at Home Studios, where their research uses AI to explore connections between exhibition exhibits, their contexts, and also the audience. So, Jussi, what concrete projects are you applying to what are you working on right now? We have two concrete research projects that are looking at that. So looking at how we can use machine learning and AI techniques to help curate content for museums or, or other sort of uh, authorities in communicating their stories. We as a studio are very much about physical presence. The recent times have put a bit of a spanner in the works to think of how we can translate the physical experience to also partially and more and more involve the online digital exchange, which is the second research project called New Form that we are conducting together with the Natural History Museum here in Berlin to look at how we can communicate proximity from far apart. Hi, Carl. Hi, Yussi. So the project that I'm working on is something called Will Play, which is a collaboration between me and some graduate students in the English faculty here at Oxford and a local games company. And what we've done is at the most kind of basic level is to kind of put a chatbot into a Shakespeare play so that users can engage in a dialogue with characters within the play as a way of creating a more kind of immersive reading experience. So the platform which makes the chatbot is something called Charisma AI. And what happens as you play the game is that it's aimed at secondary school students and really is a way of demystifying and making modern and accessible and relatable uh, Shakespeare play. So we've taken Romeo and Juliet and the reader or the player gets to chat through the play and discuss ideas and events as it's going on. How did you first get involved applying AI in your work? I first got involved when I went to a workshop and met Annette Parry, who helped develop this software. And she explained what it was that they'd made, where you could have an interactive storytelling, story playing experience. And I thought, wow, that would be amazing if you put that into a pre-existing story. And you could kind of test out alternative versions of that story within itself. That seemed to me exciting theoretically. So then we got some funding to do a prototype. And what we've ended up creating is quite a long way away from where we started, but it was through that initial conversation and the excitement around the potential of what she was describing and the sense of its possibilities within a literary work that I, that I got into it. That's a little bit of the chicken and egg challenge here. It's like, how can you formulate a big idea that you would like to develop whilst first kind of building the understanding of 
if like how elegant that big idea might be. I, I think that's like actually must say that uh, in this one research project at the studio that we've been now over two years now been looking at machine learning like through different angles of how it could be relevant in curating an exhibition as in finding curious connections to exchange as designers with the experts of the field to decide that this is a story worth telling in a museum because it has historical meaning, it has spectacular potential and whatever other parameters. So looking at this part and then like, how can we use machine learning at the visitor experience at the other end of the scale? It's really hard to find good things where it, it's better to be done through machine learning versus some other way. And this kind of a techno-optimistic world that we're living in or research grants that are explicitly looking at that it's really hard to have neutrality to say, well, wait a minute, why don't we just, mm -hmm, no, because then it doesn't have machine learning and it has to have that because that's implicitly better. So instead of saying that the technical resource is very expensive to get your idea through, it's the sort of, how can you have a dialogue to have the intuition what might be elegant or worth striving for? But I mean, I must say that like still have to raise the hat on your will play because I feel like you found there a really nice sweet spot that it is not technically overwhelmingly complicated. Taking advantage of the machine learning capabilities to tell a story for clearly defined purpose in a new and exciting way that has a benefit. So I think you have a unique case there that is absolutely not the average research project results dealing with machine learning. Thanks. Can I just say something about what you said that I love what you said about we find solutions to questions and to problems and then we realize they're not machine learning generated ones. I'm like, damn, that's just not <laughs> going to take that box on that funding council. And I think <laughs> yeah. that you've constantly got to be pushing forward the frontiers of you know, this kind of quest for the, the rhetoric of innovation and of kind of technological advance in some ways is quite blinding and limiting, weirdly. It's supposed to be expanding our horizons and our boundaries. But if what we feel is if we want to get money to support anything, we have to be pushing at the edges of what's possible. Mm. Technically, you're much less likely to go with a kind of comfortable option, like the kind of stuff we've done, which takes something really quite basic and then thinks around it in a kind of creative way and I don't know how we get beyond that when the priorities seem to be driven by by this rhetoric of innovation and transformation. I hope somebody from the political like higher echelons <laughs> of political decision making are listening but actually to be a little bit provocative here isn't that exactly kind of in a way what Will Play has done is that you can have a conversation with the character in a story not endlessly long but you are then like exploring the world you're exploring the yeah. character in the world where you mix original quotes with the translated to the uh, short form of chat. And there, I think I trust the latest language models to be able to be trained in the characters, to be able to generate the Eliza++ kind of conversations with the user or with the visitor in, in this world. So you meet the character from an epic film in a cafe, a little bit like... Oh, like, uh, you know, the, if you know the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, uh, the sort of the moments that are the backstage. So you end up having like continuous experience switching between the backstage and the front stage. 
I think this would be possible. I do agree that it is partly kind of nightmarish because <laughs> it's creating this endless alternative reality to kind of uh, to keep us away from the real, which is not necessarily also helpful. But I can see that it uh, could be compelling. Yeah, I agree. I think that's so interesting. And in a way, is that so different from fan fiction? So what happens in fan fiction is that people construct their own alternative versions of a pre-existing story yeah. and then they live in those and build those around their interests. And that's happening, I mean, through human acts of kind of writing and creation, but that it has that same kind of, I just want to live in this world, but I want to make it a bit more like my world. Totally. This shows you about a different interaction evolving between the author, the creator, and their audience, their readership, if there's a change away from consuming that prepackaged experience, the feeling of love, the excitement of battle or whatever it is, and if there's a, and us consuming that, or if there's different relationship. Understanding of creative work, let's say from an audience point of view, but then also leading over to agency and authorship. Yeah, okay. So that is one of the things that I have found the most interesting about doing this whole Shakespeare project because I was taught when I was growing up as many people were that Shakespeare was the kind of master of human feeling and human communication that to know ourselves we should read a Shakespeare play and that would connect us with humanity that there was some sort of root essentialized ex human experience that was there in those plays then you try teaching those uh, to undergrads let alone to younger children and they are often incomprehensible because of the, you know, because of the language, because of the concepts, because of the kinds of jokes, the, the frameworks that you need to be able to get them. And so we lose some, some of those um, expectations about what we think Shakespeare can deliver, get sort of lost in translation, if you like, in the, the there's a kind of barrier because of the, the unfamiliarity. And so then weirdly, what this whole kind of messaging thing has enabled is for Shakespeare to become relatable in ways that he wasn't when it was in a traditional text. Because it's so much easier for a 13 year old to have a chat and feel connected to someone when they're doing it on a mobile phone rather than reading a page with line numbers on and mega amounts of footnotes that you have to read in order to, to kind of get the story. We have made Shakespeare is now more human because of a non-human intervention, and that is a paradox that uh, that I find really intriguing. That it, it's a kind of trick of the light, obviously, because they haven't got a real person speaking to them. They've got some machine-generated, pre-scripted dialogue, but they feel really connected with those characters. They don't say, "Oh, the computer made me do this." They say, "And then she asked me what I thought about the poem, and I just didn't know. I think he really likes her." this kind of thing and they wouldn't be saying that if they weren't playing it right on a whatsapp chat so that's interesting and yeah. then you asked about agency and i think uh that's an interesting question isn't it because it gives the reader more agency that playing experience because they feel that they're in dialogue with author sorry with characters within a play that Pre, so some of the agency comes to the reader in ways that does, they don't feel that they can own uh, when they're reading in, in more conventional ways. So I feel like uh, it sort of destabilizes the, the power dynamic between the author and the text and the reader in, in quite interesting ways. And, and I think what's productive educationally is making the reader feel like they have agency when they often don't feel that they have in that situation. 
And to extend that in terms of authorship, we discussed earlier with Yussi about the computer changing authorship. Some people are worried about replacing authorship. How about that? Well, I think there are two different questions there. I mean, one is the sort of, who wrote this? You know, by the time you've got the, so say you get a printout of the dialogue that's happened between Mercutio and the character, uh, the player, or Romeo or Juliet or whatever it is, what you've got is some scripted dialogue from a kind of uh, web of nodes, which is, you know, feeds, uh, is, is a series of kind of prompts and questions to the reader player. And then you've got their responses. You've also got lines of Shakespeare's within it, which are taken from the play. So you have got multiple authors there, but who has created the end product, which is a mashup of all of those and which is different mm. every time you play. And that's clearly not just an issue. For, that's a every kind of um, individualized player experience creates a new version of a game. And what if you then package that game or that played experience in the form of a text, which you can in this, because it's a text-based scenario, whose is it? I don't know whose it is, um, but that seems interesting, you see? So I totally have to jump into that. So there's no reason to try to be dogmatic and define it as, well, who is it then? Because I think it is really like just the acknowledgement that it's an amalgam of these different actors. And then if you think of the its educational value so that you do have then the, the original source and then you have reflection of your response to, and you automatically begin to then have a role where like, what would I think about it? Not as the passive third person reader, but in active engage, uh, being confronted by the situation. I think that's the most powerful way about it. I wanted to say, this is maybe a bit of a segue or stretch, but two parts. There's from the cinema context now, the introduction of 360 degrees cinema. It's a new trend, different technology, nothing to do with AI, other than maybe stitching the images together into this seamless whole. But there's a lot of talk about scholars in this field to like how the narrative, the power of 360 cinema, more immersive, you have your 3D goggles on and you can look around, but you lose the control of the director where you're supposed to look at. Uh, <laughs> you can use different tricks to guide the attention by changing scenes in a place where things, like where the activity takes place is then the place where the next scene's activity also takes place. But you cannot cut, you cannot do this standard sort of a, editing or montage techniques that we have now 100 years uh, ex experience. So the power of this kind of cinematic form is much more about setting the place. It's about the milieu. It's about the environment. It's about the ambience and not about the efficient slice through the narrative that the linear storytelling puts down much, much better. So this on one hand, and on the other hand, the popular culture, massive universe of computer games has kind of primed us to, to expect interactivity, to expect this sort of a free exploration and agency in becoming part of a story. So where the story in the efficient form of writing a text or unfolding a script in a cinematic form, instead of that, it is the sort of having vignettes and moments that are part of the grand timeline if you did write it into a book. But then it's the sort of engagement and participation of the user, whether in the first person shooter uh, or the text-based adventure, or you looking around in a 360 cinema. And that is the, the, like, that is the kind of thrill and the excitement and the purpose of this kind of format. It's a world 
instead of a fixed story from beginning to the end. So world building replaces the monomyth of the hero's journey. Right. I, I like that. Where the hero still can hobble around and, <laughs> and be discussed and uh, be a reflection, like a, can be a character that you encounter at times, but you are there as yourself. Yeah, I think that's true. I think like coming back to the discussion we've just been having about an immersive self-created experience versus a pre-scripted and fixed one I think I'd want to like we're presenting that as a as a kind of binary right in which you know I'm really interested in the 360 cinema experience but thinking about like you know what makes good art is someone making professional creative bold decisions about and curating experience right like you might as well just watch CCTV footage if you're going to take away all of those acts of judgment and skills. So I'm trained as interaction designer. I'm striving for good experiences in space, telling stories, engaging the audiences. And right now, because of the remote everything world, as we are also having this conversation, which probably would not take place if it wasn't for the remote capability, also kind of create this stronger connection And where machine learning can help with that is, I think, is this like, is this sort of a some sense of superpowers that it can give either to the curators or to the visitors to be part of the world. This is the sort of subject wise. And then at the same time, the kind of a techno critique that we just touched on, that's definitely something that I would like to be able to address with my work sort of a literacy or understanding or unweaving the rainbow kind of docking style. So when you understand the technology, you can still be extremely excited about the result. So it's not necessarily, you don't, by demystifying technology, you don't necessarily make it any less, but it's just shifting from the cult-like celebration to the more kind of reflective, introspective. So that's what I would like to promote or wish from my work. I'd like to see the take up in schools and with students of the thing I've created and it's it's scaling up to be used in more ways. And I'd also like to see more people like me who don't have a technical background, but who are kind of curious and open-minded, think about the ways in which they might use new technologies, not only to create new things but also just to think about the idea of creativity or authorship or, or you know whatever those conceptual issues are that they're engaged with just not be fearful of stuff you don't really understand and don't know about Many thanks for listening to our work. We hope that you found it stimulating and that you will subscribe for more thought-provoking podcasts from artists and researchers working jointly in Oxford and Berlin. If you should like to get in touch, please email us on info at oib.ox.ac.uk.